0: Welcome to the Landmark Theaters Film Club podcast. In this episode, we'll hear director Morgan Neville discuss his new Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? This Q&A was moderated by Scott Mance and recorded at the Landmark in Los Angeles on the film's opening weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody.
1: Um, As a documentary filmmaker, seeing this many bodies in the theater makes me feel very good so thank you
0: and it's the, it's the yes. afternoon too <laughs> it's great thank you so, so for for someone who has a very sort of loose memory of, of Mr. Rogers because I, I know we're of, uh, the same generation for sure like for all these years before you started working on this movie what did what did Mr. Rogers mean to you what was the idea of Mr. Rogers to you <sighs> I mean I had
1: like a I loved him as a kid but mainly I had like a residual warm feeling about him more than I had a strong specific memory yeah. um, and you know I loved Eddie Murphy's Mr. Robinson neighborhood <laughs> and and I feel like um a person's relationship with if you grew up watching Mr. Rogers Um, Your relationship mirrors your own emotional development. You know, as a child, you're open emotionally, and he was always open, and kids connect with him in that way. When you're a teenager or a young adult, you really are trying to hide your emotions, or you're out of sync with your emotions, and you make fun of Mr. Rogers, (laughs) which I did. Um, And then as you get older, hopefully, you reestablish your connection to your feelings. I've got kids. You know, you start to kind of re-experience these things. And certainly there's an experience of of having children that reconnects you with those earliest memories. But making this film was revisiting a character for whom next to my family might be the oldest relationship I have. Sure. You know, yeah, yeah. I started watching him when I was one. He went on TV when I was six months old. Um, so... It's, it's an interesting experience because it predates your memory, you know. It's like he was always there, just like your parents
0: were. Exactly. Um, and yeah, and I can't think of another cultural figure like that. Like the, the, you know, like if you had Electric Company, you had Sesame Street. Those were groups, and there were, you know, the Jim Henson angle. But this is, I mean, it's Fred Rogers. It's one person. And, like, he was the center of it all. Well,
1: and there was the uniqueness to the way he did the show, too. He never said, "Hey, kids." It was a, "How are you doing?" It was always speaking to a single child, and giving enough space and silence for that child to fill in their own thoughts and words and emotions back. Mm -hmm. And so, when Fred encountered children in the real world, which he did, virtually in the, when he was out in public, any child who saw him had to go talk to him. (laughs) and, um, and he was one of the most famous people in America. And yeah. Fred would never, Fred acknowledged every encounter with a child as a real recognition of a pre-existing relationship. you know, yeah, that yeah. you're my friend from the neighborhood. Um, you know, uh, do you visit me there? You know, that it was this sense of we know each other because to the child they did know him, you know, and he got, for instance, um an incredible, incredible amount of mail. And um and he responded to every letter he got. Uh and it was a huge part. He would spend hours and hours and hours every week doing it. Um because again if a child wrote, it's because they felt they knew him. And he um he always responded thoughtfully and in this it, in this amazing way. He actually published this book um, called uh, Dear Mr. Rogers that he put out in the 90s. That's just a collection of letters he got and the letters he wrote back. And it's one of my favorite things. Um, and the opening letter in the, in the book uh, is, and I'll paraphrase it a bit, but it's a five-year-old boy, writes and says, Dear Mr. Rogers, are you for real? Are you for real or not? Are, are you under a mask like Big Bird? My birthday wish is I want to know whether or not you are for real. And what's so interesting, you know, when I read that letter, I said, well, that's kind of the question that everybody has. Everybody, when they find out I was working on this film, everybody asks some version of, so what's the deal with that guy? You know, yeah, sure. like, yeah. you know, he's not like anybody you probably know in your life. Um, he was. An unusual person and totally unique. Um, and you know, screening the film, particularly for people who aren't playing you know, paying close attention, you know, they're waiting for the giant skeleton to come out of the closet in the second act of the film. you know yeah. and the the revelation is that he, not only is he Mr. Rogers, but he's actually a better version of Mr. Rogers. He's a more willful,
0: intellectual-seeking, dimensional version of what that character was. You know, growing up for a long time, after I watched the show when I was younger, you know, I felt like he was square. You know, you made fun of him. I mean, definitely the Eddie Murphy thing was a big reason for that. But this theater is full of people. (laughs) And for, for Mr. Rogers, why? Like, what was it about him? that people still and, well, like, love. What's well, why I wanted to make the film. Um, which was
1: really not because I wanted to do a nostalgia piece. It was because when I became reacquainted with him as, as an adult, the overwhelming feeling I got was, where is this voice in our culture? You know, it was yeah. just this overwhelming sense of this adult, empathetic voice that was helping us process as he would say, the difficult modulations of life, you know, of which there are many these days, but just also a, vo- a voice that spoke for civility, you know, what I, what I tend to call his philosophy of radical kindness, um, but I think he would have talked about it as grace, you know, from his religious background. He talked about the idea of grace all the time, but the, the real, the biblical version of grace, which is um, doing good unto others even if they don't deserve it. It's really a completely blind um, investment of kindness
0: out there in the world um, with no expectation of anything back. You you could have just made a biography of Fred Rogers, and and that's not what this is. I mean, it is a little, but when did it hit you? When did you have that epiphany of, I know how to make this movie, this is how I'm gonna do it, and what did his family, how did his family respond to Uh, that? I had that epiphany at the beginning. Oh, right in the beginning. Yeah.
1: I mean, that was it. It was like, this is about a voice and ideas. And when I first met with uh, Joanne Rogers, who's amazing, um, we went to Pittsburgh and I sat down with her and I said, I don't want to make a film about the biography of Fred Rogers. I want to make a film about the ideas of Fred Rogers. And she smiled and she said, Fred would love that because he always said if anybody made a film out of his biography it'd be the most boring film of all time um so she liked it and it's it's something that i think fred himself struggled with which is to be taken seriously to understand that simple simple doesn't just mean simplistic or superficial simple and deep was the thing he was doing. There was so much depth to every decision he made, you know, again and again. Um, I mean, he was such a such a perfectionist about things. I mean, for instance, uh, I, I, I wish I'd gotten this in the film. It was like an interesting detail that it's very telling, um, that he always wanted his shows to be evergreen and that they could be shown for generations and they're very consistent. They actually could. Yeah. yeah. And, um, if there were things he had done in old episodes, like by the mid 70s, he felt if he had said he instead of they, if he had presumed a male pronoun, he put on his old clothes and shot inserts and in fixed old episodes. <laughs> Can you think of anybody else in TV history doing that? No, you know so <laughs> because he wanted to feel a hundred percent confident that... Every episode was up to the most current standards of his own moral point of view and of the standards of,
0: you know, the state of childhood development at that moment. You know, the when you, the other kids programs, they're very much for kids. You know, they're I, I can't think of an example at the top of my head. But watching the footage of Mr. Rogers uh, right now and when I saw the film back at Sundance, I am thinking of how comforting it is as a grown-up how relatable it is for the way he talks that yeah sure you know two to six-year-olds will dig it but uh you know 49 year old guy will dig it too and and i was uh, really kind of blown away by how uh how relevant he was for grown-ups just as much yeah. as kids well i mean he was always speaking for
1: two different people the child watching but also the person in the back of the room watching You know, and at the peak of his viewership uh, in the mid 1970s, he was watched in one of every 12 households in America every day. And as a show for two to six year olds, that means there were a lot of people not two to six that were watching that show. And I didn't even think about this in the beginning, but the number of people I've met who said they learned English watching his show, or you know, came to understand our culture watching his show. to get to that point, I, I think it was not just a, um, a moral point of view and a strong moral sense that he had that might speak to us, or sense of civics, but it was also a sense of helping us process difficult times, <laughs> which I think was something that was so central to what he wanted to do—to um, help kids navigate their fears. You know, because he believed that fear, fear was an incredibly destructive force. That would lead to things like hatred and anger and resentment. So he he wanted people to not, um, he wanted children, but it works for adults too. To not just ignore these bad things that happen, or try and forget them, but actually think about what
0: they mean, try and understand them, and then move on. Like I was I was taken with the uh, the conversation about divorce, and you know this is a kid show. And the way, he, the way he was talking about it was, was very, like, I, I, I was comforted, too, <laughs> listening to him talk about this. And, and uh, I felt like this really, for all these years, I had this, I felt like I misunderstood Fred Rogers until I saw this, this film. Well, you were watching it when you were five years old.
1: Well, that's true. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I don't know if anybody, certainly the kids in the room— probably didn't understand the the overtones of what he was doing. I certainly didn't. Um, and there were so many more, you know, things that were subtle, things that are um, more obvious, but I don't think, I, I think the subtlety was actually very important to him, that, you know, if he had said, I'm, you know, doing an anti-war episode, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't his way, and it wasn't what he was trying to do. He wasn't trying to push... Uh, a political point of view or an agenda. He was trying to push a human and a moral point of view, right. and that was the thing that came from his faith—not only his Christian faith, but his deep belief in the power of God and these, you know, the the principles of of faith, um, love, and forgiveness, which was something he talks about. Pardon at the end in the in that 9/11 um, PSA that he had done, but he often quoted. Christ saying the one thing that evil cannot tolerate is forgiveness you know I think he was he was never judgmental he was always trying to understand and forgive and that is so different from what we hear
0: elsewhere in the culture these days going through all the archival footage and there was a lot of it was there something that you wanted to put in the film that just you just couldn't do it you know that you just had to cut for time
1: I mean, there were so many great details about things. I mean, things like um, uh, he was a vegetarian his whole adult life because uh, he said he never wanted to eat anything with a mother, you know. And there was this great kim on the cover of Vegetarian Times magazine. This, you know, there was a great thing about that. There's a great story his son told me um, that as as their his sons became teenagers and Fred was trying to stay in touch with what the kids were into and what they were into um, because he said, well, give me the music you're listening to because he had been a composition major in college. He wrote all the music on the show. He obviously processed and thought musically in many, many different ways. Um, and so his son Jim said, well, I was trying to throw him for a loop. I'd give him the Allman Brothers, then give him Frank Zappa. Uh, and he said, "My, you know, my dad liked like Zappa, but he said the, the musician that my dad really connected with was Bob Marley. Um, and if you think about the message of Marley's music, One Love you know, and all of these things, it's very much on message. It comes out of that Rastafarian morality, another kind of religious idea. Um, and then he said, of course, I didn't give my dad any of the ganja songs. Just, just the love songs. So, see, I would have had a peg for a Beach Boys kind of guy, but yeah. yeah. He also said that his dad's favorite TV show was Monty Python's Flying Circus. Oh. Yeah.
0: So he is cool. Yes. There you go. Yes. Uh, I want to open up to the audience while we have a, a, a some time, but I, before I do, I just want one more question, Joanne Rogers. Yeah. What was it like the first time she saw the film? Um, she's so amazing.
1: And I I just have to put this plug in because I'm so impressed by her doing this. Uh, she's driving to New York tomorrow from Pittsburgh because she's going to go on the Today Show on Monday and she's going on Jimmy Fallon Tuesday night. Wow. She's 92, Aww. you know, and you might want to watch that. I, yeah, I'm very curious to cool. see yeah. to see how that goes, uh, yeah. which is awesome that she can do that for us. Um, but when we screened the film for her, when we picture locked and I went back to Pittsburgh to let her see it, um, we went to her apartment, and somehow she ended up sitting behind me, so I couldn't look at her during the movie, which was a big mistake. (laughs) Um, So I just sat there waiting for 94 minutes, uh, (laughs) and at the end of it, I turned around, and she had a big smile, and she said, that was so wonderful, I didn't even cry once, (laughs) which She's the only person for whom that's a good review <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's, that I think for her it gave her this overwhelming sense of joy and that and that we got Fred in Some ways and then the next thing she said was Fred would have loved this movie
0: uh, which was The best review the best yeah. possible review is that on yeah. Rotten Tomatoes because it no, should be but. Uh, Does anyone have a, a question while we still have time yes, you. I love this film so much. Um, my question is, at one point, Joanne said that she and Fred weren't allowed to express the anger when they were growing up. Was he an abusive? How sort of was just a strict? What was his, was, uh, his uh, upbringing like, Fred Rogers? It wasn't abusive. And
1: he loved his parents. They were just of the generation where children were meant to be you know, seen but not heard. He was an. He had a very unique childhood insofar as he was an only child. He was overweight. He was sickly. He also was at that crucial age of six, seven, right when the Lindbergh kidnapping happened. Oh. For those of you who remember, <laughs> nineteen thirty-seven, maybe, um, where. Um, Affluent families, and Fred came from an affluent family, were afraid their children might get kidnapped because that's what had happened. So they kind of kept him under latchkey. He was really, they were hyperprotective over him. So he was really isolated in a big way. Um, and I think that, and kind of a lack of, you know, there was no value put on expressing emotions. Uh, and if anything, it was discouraged. Um, the other thing that happened in his childhood that I think was really informative was when he was 12, his parents adopted a baby. So that's Laney, who we interview in the film, also known as Lady Elaine. You know, that's where the name came from. Um, And he not only had that experience of being an only child, but he then, as a 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old, had a front row seat to see a baby grow up and to really witness that from
0: a way that most children don't. Well, ladies and gentlemen, so it's the summer and, you know, there's a lot of big movies out there. And this film is a wonderful movie that everyone should see. And the best way to do that is to spread the word. And how do you do that these days? Social media. So make sure you go on Twitter, you go on Facebook, you go on Instagram. I don't know if you're still using MySpace in the back. Whatever floats your boat but please do spread the word about "Won't you be my neighbor and thank you very much thank Morgan you Neville. so much everybody appreciate it awesome